Hello and welcome to Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast, a podcast to inspire you about outdoor travel and activities in the UK and across the world. I'm Hannah. And I'm Joe. And thank you for joining us for our latest episode. This episode is all about walking in Zermatt and Zasfay, the area covered in a brand new guidebook by Cicerone owners and authors, Jonathan and Leslie Williams. Zermatt is one of the world's greatest mountain resorts and this region in the Valais is famous for recognisable peaks such as the Matterhorn and Monte Rosa. Jonathan is Cicerone's publisher and managing director. He spends far too much time in the office but tries to escape wherever possible and says the more he sees, the more there is to see. Leslie is the marketing director at Cicerone and has enjoyed a lifelong passion for the outdoors and mountains. Their explorations have included many trips around the world but this was their first guidebook together. Zermatt is uh, its just a real mountain lover's paradise. There's the 4,000 metre peaks, the big, massive giants of the Alps that are just dotted around everywhere you look, one side of the valley and the other. Zermatt's just such a historical town for mountaineering and for, for walking and for and for exploration uh, as well. I mean, like the, the history of climbing on the Matterhorn, it's got some remarkable stories behind it as well. But pretty much all the time from when you're walking in the Zermatt area, you can always see this perfectly triangular mountain rising up and looking looking a bit terrifying, really. But it's it's pretty cool to think that you don't really need to get your hands and your feet onto the Matterhorn in order to really enjoy what that area's got to offer, because there's quite a lot of pretty straightforward walking to be done in the area as well that's not going to leave you uh, clinging to a cliff face. The closest I've come to enjoying the Matterhorn is eating a Toblerone. That's about my Matterhorn knowledge it's the mountain on the Toblerone packaging (laughs) is it in the middle of a patchwork of tons of long distance routes that you could do uh yes so Zermatt is of course the final destination for the Haute route the long distance walk between Chamonix and Zermatt and on that final stage of of the Haute route you get to walk all the way up the Matatal which is the name of the valley with Zermatt as the town at its head and it's a it's a pretty cool experience arriving in in Zermatt with the Matatal horn directly above but it is important to mention that uh, you do need to be careful with your wallet when you end up in Zermatt it's a pretty expensive place to be but of course there's um, there are a number of other long distance routes uh, in that area there's the Tour of Monte Rosa which does a, a giant loop from Zermatt into Italy and back into Switzerland again what else is there the Tour of the Matterhorn which um, does what it says on the tin would you say that Zermatt and Zasfay are a good destination for beginners people that haven't been to the Alps before and done much in the Alps. Yeah, I'd actually say it's a totally fine place for beginner alpine walkers to go. The guidebook has got 50 routes in it, and there are plenty of those routes which are a bit gentler, maybe sticking to the valleys or making use of some of the cable cars and not too strenuous. But at the other end of the spectrum, there are some pretty tough walking routes that you can do that do cross glaciers, go up to small mountain peaks, and those kind of things you you might want some technical equipment just to protect yourself a little bit but but actually there is a lot to do for the the beginner alpine walker and anyone that's used to walking in in the lake district or anywhere in the uk or really anywhere in the us will find it pretty good going to to be walking in zermatt and sasfay the paths are all um very well signposted as they tend to be in switzerland so you can always see oh it's only an hour and 15 minutes to get to that cable car or i'll just go down there and zermatt's um not too far away so those signs 
things are really helpful and those things are all the way across Switzerland. And the guidebook, the signs are really good and the guidebook is um, really essential. (laughs) The guidebook, it's just essential, really, yeah. Good, thanks for that. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Leslie. Hi, Jonathan. Hello. Hi, Hannah. You've been at Cicerone for over 20 years and you've been a Cicerone customer many, many times, but this was your first guidebook together. How was life on the other side? Well, perhaps we can qualify that just a little bit because we've probably rewritten many guidebooks over the years. And and also there is an element of the first guidebook together here. So yes, this was our first attempt to do it together. We've worked on updates of several in the past, I must say, the Alpine Pass route across the middle of Switzerland and particularly Chamonix-Zermatt. But yes, this was a from the ground up So we faced all the challenges of two people working together, but we've been facing those for the last 20 years. To be honest, in fact, we were quite diplomatic with each other in terms of sharing out which routes we were going to walk and record and research and write up. So, in fact, a lot of it was actually exclusively our own work and then the work for the introductory pages and bringing the whole project together was very definitely a joint enterprise. So I got all the hard, great stuff, and you had the the valleys and the steep bottom of the hillside. Not not exclusively. I did get a few peaks in as well. So the way you worked together was to avoid working together apart from the necessary bits. <laughs> I think that probably sums it up. Yes. I think we walked together twice in about five or six weeks of research. It was quite nice to meet up, you know, one afternoon a week, perhaps at a, a little bar somewhere high in the mountains and both appear from different angles and uh, and to have a nice long lunch together and then go our separate ways. Zermatt is one of the world's great mountain resorts. Could you talk us through some of the highlights of the area? Zermatt is a mountain town. It's a big, bustling place, well known in winter as a ski resort. But in the summer, those lifts are all there for you to take you up high very quickly. So it's got great walking attractions. It's got, I I can't remember how many 4,000 meter peaks surrounding the valley and and some of the finest mountains in the Alps. I mean, why wouldn't you? You know, it's got high huts and some of the easier peaks, as well as fantastic shorter walks lower down in the valleys as well. Sasfe is very different. It's a developed resort, but it's much lower key and calmer. And if anything, provides walking that is certainly as good as Zermatt and there is as, almost as many options and variety. It tends to be a, a, a little bit easier but it's a, it's a much calmer experience. Yes, a, a calmer experience. Uh, there's a fantastic network of paths and many of them are fairly straightforward or even um, follow water courses. So it's an area that really will suit absolutely anybody. The other thing is that there is good transport up the valley all the way to the Matnock Reservoir, which is just to the north of the Italian border. So it's a fascinating area. So how difficult is it to get in and around Zermatt and Zasfe? Because you're not allowed to take cars, are you? No, um, both resorts have huge car parks. In the case of Zasfe, it's just on the outskirts of the village itself. And in the case of Zermatt, You have to leave your car at Tash. And once upon a time, the whole village of Tash was taken over with a vast car park occupying the meadows around. But now it's all underground and it looks much, much better. The capacity for all the cars is greater as well. 
but you really don't need a car when you get there. So actually, the best bet is not to take a car in the first place and save the cost of the car parking. When we went out, we actually used the train all the way from Cumbria down to London and then over to France, to Geneva, and then on in through Switzerland and finally by bus to Sasfe. Wow. How long did that take? Well, we probably overnighted in London, but we were certainly tucked up in our accommodation by, you know, six in the evening in Switzerland. Yeah. So it was probably about 12 hours altogether, something like that. It undoubtedly costs a little bit more than driving or flying. But if you go and check your carbon footprint, it's much better. And we, we really enjoyed it and we do it again every time that we can. Switzerland being Switzerland, the network of post buses and the train up through the uh, Matatal really does run by clockwork and um, you really don't need a car. Zermatt is based around the one town. So once you're in the one town, everywhere is accessible from you there. So that's very easy. SAS is actually more a complex of resorts and valleys. And we stayed in a, down in the valley in Sassgrund. Um, and there are other Sasses higher up and lower down the valley. And the, the buses were a truly excellent feature of that. They go every 20 minutes and they take you exactly where you want to go. So having a car would have been pointless. But if I'm remembering it right, SAS also had a pass system which allowed you to travel pretty much anywhere on the public transport for either nothing or not very much. So, you know, that's one of the advantages of SAS. Zermatt probably doesn't need to help people with the cost of transport. One of the tricks is to buy a Swiss rail pass, a half-price travel in Switzerland pass, which on the face of it costs you 100 Swiss, but it certainly saves many times that over the course of a couple of weeks if you're a small party. In general, how expensive is Zermatt? I mean, Zermatt is probably a little bit more expensive than Switzerland as a whole. Switzerland as a whole, a meal out can be a little bit pricey. So sometimes you do want to step around it. I mean, we were staying in apartments and we were by and large eating in the apartments, but we were also working because you're, you're writing. At the end of our day in a, a shower, we'd settle down and start sorting out photos and GPS files and mapping and writing up our routes. So the chances to go off to the pub were uh, surprisingly few and far between. We did have some very hot weather, though, and uh, one of the things we did start doing was uh, meeting for an ice cream before going back to do our evening work, shall we say. That was less expensive and, and very much needed. <laughs> Brilliant. So how difficult are the, the walks in the book? It's a huge range. One or two of the walks in the book would be um, maybe an hour or something like that on either virtually flat or very slightly hilly terrain, right up to some of the stuff that Jonathan was doing, which is um, sort of bordering on mountaineering. It's about as hard as it would possibly get while you still call yourself a walker. I think that's fair. I mean, the Swiss path network is thoroughly graded anyway, from yellow, very easy paths and tracks through red that they call Burgwanderweg mountain paths through to blue alpine paths. And, you know, the red covers a pretty wide variety of things. And the alpine stuff is quite stern. Perhaps the hardest route in the book is the route to the Monte Rosa Hutter which crosses glaciers and then undulates over 
post-glacial terrain, I think is best described as. The glacier was there and it ain't anymore. And it's uh, an extensive period of, in essence, scrambling, but with a drop. There's 50 routes in the book. So I guess if you're not up for something challenging, there's plenty to choose from. Yeah, absolutely. There's plenty. You know, if, if you want exposure, you can find it. If you want a gentle, short afternoon and uh, some beautiful old chapels, you can find it. If you sort of want a level walk from one cable car top station to another, there it is. Or if it's a a shortish stroll to a friendly hut and a nice Coca-Cola, then you can do that. Every level of walking is catered for. If you would like to discover Zermatt and Zasfei for yourself, please head on over to the Cicerone website where you can get a 25% discount on the guidebook. Type in Zermatt25, Zermatt25 at the checkout. We hope you enjoy reading the guidebooks and discovering this wonderful area for yourself. So I know there's there's 50 in the book, so you probably walked even more than 50. Can you possibly come up with a favourite walk each, or is that too hard? I, I thought you'd ask this, and I'm down to six. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've prepared well. I haven't yet. <laughs> I'm going to take a couple, one from each valley, I think. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to start in the Sass Valley, and this is a walk from Sass Al Miguel, which is the top village in the, in the Sass Valley, and it's steeply up through the woods, rising up to the 2,000, I think it's 2,900-metre Almagella hut, which I did just after the snow had melted on a very hot June day. But at uh, that sort of height, it was very pleasant walking indeed. And on the way down, uh, you're you're coming down and you're looking directly across to the mountain wall above Sass Bay, which has got four stern 4,000-metre peaks all lined up in front of you. That was very beautiful. From Zermatt, I think, uh, hard to avoid the Matterhorn, and why should you? Yes, it's a symbol that now has far surpassed what just mountaineering. It sort of means something in its own right. We have a two-day walk in there that takes you up to a high hut called the Schönbielhütte, which takes you on a ledge high across the valley, but in essence underneath the Matterhorn, with spectacular views all the way around. As, as there are in many places in the whole region, you can turn around and see every one of the 4,000-metre peaks. And that takes you up to the, the Schönbiel hut, which is right at the end of a long valley. Very remote, you know, reasonably civilised hut as these things go, and then back the next day. I have to say, the photographs in the book are incredible. So it, I can see why you're struggling to think of your favourites, because it, it, it just all looks amazing. Yes. Well, I've got two in the Sass Valley, actually. One of them was started by accident because I'd lost track of where Jonathan was as we were climbing up from Sass Al Miguel to the Al Miguela Valley. And he'd gone straight ahead and I'd rather not gone straight ahead or round the other way. And I'd ended up at the foot of an alternative path. And I said, oh, that's OK. I'll, I'll meet you there. What I hadn't actually focused on was my alternative path was effectively a a kind of via ferrata. I (laughs) started off on the bottom of this thing and looked sort of virtually straight up a long metal ladder, climbed that, and then sort of it twisted and turned through some little rocky outcrops and continued going up. And I was thinking, okay, this is interesting. And then there were various other sort of little hazards along the way, including two rope bridges and staples in the rock and, you know, handrails appear there and everywhere. 
anyway, I eventually popped out and I'd had an absolutely brilliant time and was determined that this would actually go in the book. So we actually linked it to the Hohenweg, which is sort of the southern extension of the Gisborne Hohenweg. So it then linked from the Almagella Valley all the way to um, a cable car station area at Kreuzboden. And that was a fantastic walk too. You're just high, high above the valley and you've got views across to Saspe and mountains all around you. And it's, it's really liberating. And I think my other one, favourite one, was was actually later in our research when the snow had more or less melted, which was up from the Matmark up to the Montemoro Pass with a view into Italy. And it's sort of quite tricky during the time when the snow is still lying because you would find it quite hard to find the correct path. But it goes up in a sort of very logical series of rock ledges it's a very good path and many, many people do it. You know, it's an ancient route. But again, the sort of achievement and also the view was great. It's a walking guidebook, but you mentioned that there was a bit of Via Ferrata in that walk. Do you have to take um, any specialist equipment? Did you take Via Ferrata equipment? No, we didn't. Uh, and actually, this sort of quasi Via Ferrata doesn't require equipment. It's designed so that you can do it just clambering up ladders and holding onto rails and things. There are some Via Ferratas in the region for which you, A, need equipment, but secondly, you actually need a guide. And it's it's a requirement, even if you're experienced, because there had been a, a sort of fatal accident in the past in the Faye Visper Gorge. Yeah, I mean, we you don't need Via Ferrata equipment. In practice, I took an axe and crampons because some of, some of the higher routes did cross stretches of snow, uh, small bits of glacier, and uh, you may as well have everything that you need. We did start early in the summer when it was much better to have it, but it was, you know, for one or two routes in the high summer, it was a, a valuable thing to have. But, uh, you know, it's probably only a couple of routes would require that. And if you wanted to, it's all easily rentable in town. So talking about when you went, you said it was summer, but it was the sort of early start of summer. So when would you recommend going to Zermatt and Sasfe? Personally, I would probably suggest, I mean, the entire summer is fine. If, if you were to start in June, you're going to have snow higher up, but all the lower stuff is there and available. It's going to be a little bit quieter. July is going to be somewhat busier. The snow is gone from almost all the high paths by mid-month, but it is a little bit busier. It's about mid-August, I think, when the Swiss schools go back. So from mid-August onwards, you're a little bit quieter. And also from then going into September, the, the slight risk of afternoon thunderstorms that you have in any mountain environment falls away. It doesn't quite disappear altogether, but is much rarer in September. So if you if you left me to my own devices, I would probably say June or September. But the summer was perfectly fine. It was lively, but not excessively busy. And everything's at its most open then as well. And presumably they're, they're year-round destinations, but just depending on whether you want to walk or ski. Presumably there's always accommodation and places to eat open. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Definitely all summer. And also, I, I would think, you know, through October and probably earlier into May, there are plenty of places open. You won't have so much choice. You know, these hoteliers and uh, cafe folk have got to get away. And that's probably when they do it. But there's still there'll be, there'll be plenty of choice. 
You've also got when the huts are open as well, which tends to be from sometime early to mid-June onwards through until the end of September, likely enough. That's one of those surprising features is how gastronomic it could be going for a mountain walk around Zerbat. I mean, you, you know, <laughs> uh, there are, you know, you've got little hamlets with four or five different restaurants in there. You've both been to Zermatt a fair few times, I, I would say, over your adventurous lives together. But was there anything about the area in the guidebooks that surprised you? Yes, there was. Absolutely. Curiously, I've been to Zermatt quite a few times before, you know, occasionally traveling up when we were with younger families and finishing off trek, like the Chamonix Zermatt trek, which clearly ends in Zermatt. And similarly, Sasfe visited a couple of times and that sort of thing. Before taking on the project, I kind of had my doubts about them. I, I hadn't truly warmed to either place when I was just visiting. And Zermatt, you'd arrive tired from the trail and be faced with this busy, bustling place, and you'd have no idea what to do with it. Sasfe, it started as a village and has steadily developed, but it, it felt manufactured to me as a sort of perfect microcosm of mountain Switzerland. And I didn't know how I was going to get along with that. I got to tell you, having had a whole summer there, I loved it and I'm a total convert. Yeah, I think that's right. If you're there for a, a little while and you're actually living there, and in our case, working there as well, it does become a little bit more of your own home and that feeling of coming back each evening and getting to know one or two of the people who serve in the shops and things like that. It, it was a good experience. I'm looking forward to going back to do the, the, the update in the next edition in a couple of years. We did, in fact, stay in a third place. We had two weeks in June in, based in the Sass Valley, living in a, an apartment in Sassgrund. And then in August, we had two weeks in Zermatt. And then our final two weeks, we're in a much smaller resort called Grechen, which is at about the same height as both Sasfe and Zermatt, but it's further north in the Matatal Valley, but up on a high shelf. And it's a, a delightful resort. It's much, much quieter and much, much smaller. And that one really did feel a bit like home because it was towards the end of the season. It was small. You got to know who was who and where to go and... <laughs> You know, the little cafe that sold you a coffee and a takeaway mug if you absolutely needed it or whatever, and uh, it was good. And whilst you were there, because you weren't just there as tourists, you were working, did you try to ask people sneaky questions about what they thought about Cicerone? Uh, I, I, I wouldn't lead with my chin, if I could put it like that. Uh, I would wait, wait and see how it goes. But very often on the trail, we do end up talking with people about, you know, why we're there and what we're doing. And when we're in that sort of situation, we're very open about what it is and have made some great friends doing that. Yeah, I'd agree with that, keeping incognito, particularly if you're staying in a mountain hut. You learn so much more by listening to what people are saying than actually sort of divulging who you are. Um, um, but equally, um, when we were out there, I was 
checking uh, a route description that I'd written up the previous summer for an awkward little bit in the Matatal Valley where a bridge was being built or repaired. And at the time, the Chamonix Zermatt guidebook had to have a, a sort of slightly weird alternative route described. And then when I was out in the summer for this particular guidebook, I went back and checked how the progress was being made on on this broken bridge. And people were asking me, what was I doing? Because I was only sort of mooching around a small area with a book and a notebook. And uh, I explained what we were doing. And um, and they were delighted. And they, they sort of said, oh, wow, it's really interesting to see that there were real people actually updating books and information. Um, so, yeah, that was that was different. I suppose that's the thing. You weren't you weren't there as the owners of Cicerone. You you were there as authors. Um, so you know it was a different sort of trip for you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Retirement planning. Definitely. <laughs> As a geographer, it must have just been a fascinating place to visit when you were at university, but just to keep going back and seeing how things have changed must be incredible as well. So the university trip was uh, a couple of weeks field course in the Arola Valley, the Val d'Aren, and we were studying glaciers and measuring rates of flow and um, various other incredibly exciting things from a geographer's <laughs> point of view. <laughs> and over the years, we've returned to that valley and the the glaciers have receded so much. It's it's really, really noticeable. There was some where you, you used to be able to just walk up the glacier to a, a high hut or whatever. Now it's virtually impossible because of massive retreat of the glacier and it's it's difficult rock terrain underneath that's been exposed. So, yeah, huge changes. And another reason to get the train, you know, you said before about thinking about your carbon footprint, it must be quite striking to see those changes happen within a couple of years, relatively speaking. In geological time, you're incredibly young, Leslie. Oh, in geological time. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Thanks very much, Hannah. You're welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast. Let us know what you think by leaving reviews on your podcast platform or emailing us live at cicerone.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. To keep up to date with the podcast, please follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app or provider. You can also listen on the Cicerone website, www.cicerone.co.uk, where you can browse our full range of guidebooks, read plenty of articles and sign up to our newsletter. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, search for at Cicerone Press on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And you can also join our Facebook community group, Cicerone Connect, to connect with other outdoor enthusiasts. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon.